This week we'll talk about career changing and we have a special guest today, Jessica. As you might have guessed from the title, Jessica was roasting coffee, working as a barista at some point, but then she decided to learn Python and eventually she switched careers and started working as backend developer. I know Jessica because she is one of the students of our course, Machine Learning ZoomCamp. And this is how I got to know her. And I saw that her career is quite interesting. That's why I thought it's a good idea to invite her to this podcast. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's a real honor to join and be able to connect more with the community, the Data Talks Club community. And um, the Zoom camp was amazing. If folks have not already checked it out, which I'm sure there's no one listening to this who has not already checked it out, you definitely should. It was great. Yeah, thanks. So thanks for taking that course. So let's start with your background. So I already told everyone who is listening to this that you have quite an interesting career. So maybe can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yes, and I saw you said keep it brief, so I will try stick to that <laughs> because it's a little bit of a you know non-traditional background. This is actually my third career. I studied and first worked in the film industry. But at some point I found myself in Germany and I was working in coffee, doing coffee roasting. It's an incredibly interesting field in its own right. But I kind of had decided I wanted to make a switch. I was looking for something a little bit maybe more financially stable, a little bit more work-life balance. And I had this concept around potentially being able to get into the tech industry. I know some folks or I really knew some folks here in Berlin who worked in that sector. And there's lots of tech companies here. In fact, I had been to tech conferences uh, making coffee for all the participants. So I, I had this kind of touch point and an idea of what it was about. But yeah, how to go about that was, of course, not known to me. And making that leap was something that was very nerve wracking. So I would consider myself self-taught slash community taught. And I think one of the things I really want to promote is how much the community supported me. In my case, at the time, that was predominantly the PyLadies community. That happened to be the first one that I went to, and I just really connected with the folks there. And that really drove me to being at the point where I am now as a backend developer working in tech for like close to four years, I guess, which, yeah, is just been life changing, to be honest. Yeah, interesting. So you attended IT conferences as a barista. I remember usually on conferences, so for example, the PyData conference we recently both of us attended, there was like a stand with coffee and somebody was serving coffee to the participants. So at some point four years ago, you were one of such people. Exactly. And not only that, I gave a lightning talk in EuroCamp, so the Ruby conference, and they said to me, oh, why don't you come and give a talk? We do these lightning talks. I, of course, I had no conception of what this was. Maybe you can do something around coffee. And then I realized I had to get up on the stage and talk to this huge group of people. But yeah, that gave me an idea, of course, about some of the fun parts, I would say, of the industry, which were very appealing. <laughs> so you were giving talks in front of IT audience before breaking into IT. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you talk about? Like about coffee, of course, I understand. But what, what exactly was that? I'm just curious. I gave a very brief talk about how coffee traveled the world. So mainly due mm. to colonialism, but there's all these kind of like some truthful and some like embellished stories about how coffee kind of got transported to all the different countries that it now grows in. So, and then you thought, okay, like it seems like more financially stable industry, let's go there. So how did you actually make this transition? So from the point when you decided, okay, like coffee, it's cool, but you know, I'm looking for something more financially stable to the point where you started your, as an intern first, right? I don't mm -hmm, correct. I think it was, you started as an intern, right? So how did this happen? What did you do there? I think the first thing I did, which a lot of folks that I've spoke to do something similar is I went online and I searched for <laughs> what is programming? What courses can I do? And at the time, the big platform was Code Academy. And I did a lot of their courses, which is a really great platform because it's browser based. So you don't have a lot of the pain of having to run things on your machine. 
at some point you then have to transition across to actually running the things on your machine and then it can be a little bit more tricky but I started that way and really just got a feel for like does this interest me am I prepared to sit and spend a day trying to figure out what this bug is I think you just mentioned that you were like currently trying to chase a bug and like I, I think there's certain people you didn't pick yeah but not yet you you will <laughs> not yet, yet. Uh, <laughs> I spent like four hours and still I have no clue why it's not working but you see there's people that couldn't sit for four hours with that kind of problem and that's what you need to determine for yourself and that's what I wanted to figure out for myself is like am I prepared to put the effort into this for me the answer was definitely yes like I get a lot of joy from coding I really like that it mixes like a technical understanding with a creativity that I found in my other careers as well and I also was quite supported by the German government in terms of financially being supported during this learning process. So definitely would like to highlight that because that was also a bit of a game changer for me. And uh, by supported, you mean, I know in Germany, you can do a bootcamp and then the government covers the costs, right? Yeah, so they offer something called a Weiterbildungsgutschein in Germany. It means like a voucher for further education. Now, in the last couple of years, it's very popular that the boot camps kind of keyed into this and you can use this towards boot camp. At the time when I was transitioning, none of these boot camps, but they weren't as uh, many as there are now. So I didn't really actually know about that option. So the Arbeitsamt gave me one and I was at a school that was like kind of a corporate company and they mainly did like uh, courses for accountants. But essentially, I got to go there, not be like harassed about getting a job. And I had a computer and Wi-Fi. And that was really, for me, all I needed. I was, I'm very self-directed. I created like a Google calendar of like, I'm going to study maths for this hour. And then I'm going to look at this Code Academy course. And then I'm going to maybe do like this challenge on Code Wars or something like this. So I just needed time. And of course, to have time, you also need money. And that was something that the German government really supported with. How did you know what to put on that calendar? Because I imagine that it could be overwhelming. Like there are so many options. If you look at this, there are curricula online, like how to become a self-taught engineer. And then you see this checklist, which is like (laughs) kilometer long, right? And then you see and you had spins because you don't know where to start, right? With data science, it's uh, like even a bigger problem, right? Like you have all these thousands checklists, every checklist is different with backend engineering. I think it's the same. So how did you prioritize? How did you decide what is right for you? Yeah, absolutely great question. I've come across a lot of good resources since I started out. Uh, so I really like some of these roadmaps that you can find that kind of give you a high level of the things that would be useful. I did not have that. So a lot of it was kind of gut feeling I knew I was really interested in like data science as a topic, but I didn't really understand. I mean, I might also still not really understand what (laughs) exactly that means for me, but I started with the Andrew Ng machine learning course on Coursera, which is kind of like pretty in-depth and it uses MATLAB. So not a language that I have ever used (laughs) or looked at since, but um, I think, I kind of directed it around what I was really interested in. I also started doing a lot of base courses that Code Academy offer. And I think now what I would recommend folks is the free Code Camp curriculum that they have that's really developed over the last few years, because you do need some direction. I was totally overwhelmed and I have learned some things that probably were not that useful. Like, well, I enjoyed it, but like I sat and did a lot of like maths classes from like Stanford online. And I'm not really sure that in any way fits into what I do on a day-to-day basis, but maybe it will come up. (laughs) Was I correct when I said that you picked Python, right? So you studied Python in Code Academy and so you were learning Python, you were learning math, you were also taking this Andrew Eng class and you said you were sitting somewhere there was a room with a computer with wi-fi right and then what happened next like how did you get that internship how did you go from learning math sitting somewhere in front of a computer learning python to actually getting paid for what you do so i was part of a really great program called rails girls summer of code 
And very sadly, the year I joined, which was 2018, was the last year that it ran. This was a program that paid, like financially supported you to work on an open source project for three months. And you would have coaches and you would work with people from the project directly. It would look a little bit different for each group, of course. And um, the other amazing thing was you did it as a pair. So I saw this advertised and I thought like, oh, that would be a great opportunity to get some like real world experience. But I didn't know anybody else who was learning to code. So I just asked on a Slack group, hey, does anyone want to do this with me? And I have very little response. But this one amazing person, RT, reached out to me and we were complete strangers, but we met and then decided to go on this journey together. It was like very intense way to learn about yourself and about somebody else. But that gave me the opportunity then to go into the application process with Ecosia, where I now work, and say like, hey, I, I don't know this just on paper. I also have the experience of working with the team. And ultimately, that's, I believe, what also helped me be successful. I think there is a similar thing. You said uh, Rails Girls, or how was this yes. called? I think there is a similar thing called Google Summer of Code, at least from the description of what you said. So Google Summer of Code is yeah. give you some sort of scholarship to work for a summer on some open source project. Before, up until last year, I think it was only for students, but now you don't have to be a student to actually take part in that thing. If I'm not mistaken, they removed this restriction. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to say that one was for students only, but they lifted it. And there's also another one, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Outreachy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just run in summer, so it doesn't have a summer tag in there. It runs twice a year, but it's a very similar concept. Mm -hmm. So you get paid for contributing to open source and you get a mentor who helps you. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you did that. There was a person, RT, who were doing this with you, and then he connected you with people from uh, Ecosia, did I pronounce it correctly? Ecosia, the yes. company. Yeah. And then you got your internship, right? Yeah, so RT, she and I did that at the same time. She's sorry. It's okay, yeah. I think I didn't say her pronoun. But uh, what was amazing is she actually got her first programming job, like just before we took on the internship. And if she had dropped out, I couldn't have done it, but she kept going so that we could mm -hmm. pass it together. Yeah, and I met Ecosia because I went to a meetup. So I think hopefully, Touchwood now, it's looking like meetups will start to be a little bit more in person again. It's a great way to meet companies. And that for me meant there was like a bit of a personal connection to talking to the developers at Ecosia and kind of gave me also insights for when I was applying about what the company was about. So there is a question that I see, how did you get your first job in the industry? And I think you just answered that. I don't know if internship counts as the first job or not, but I think the experience is pretty much real industry experience. But then as I understood, you stayed there as a full-time employee after finishing the internship, right? So I didn't apply as an intern. I applied for like a mid-level back-end position. I see. I got mistaken. Which I was not qualified for. <laughs> And they decided to create the internship position for me. I see. That's pretty cool. So you actually did do an internship with them? And it was like, maybe, I don't know, like some sort of a test period, right? Where they could see how you work and then actually hire you as a full-time. That's cool. So I guess one takeaway from this is don't be afraid to apply to jobs that you don't seem to be qualified for, right? Yeah, for the people who are listening who are job hunting and for the people who are listening in uh, companies, sometimes it's really worth taking the risk of like making space for folks to join. How did you convince them that they actually should create internship for you? So how did you make this impression, this good impression on them? I mean, this was their decision, so I didn't suggest the internship, so I don't fully know. But for me, I believe it was because I was showing a lot of like inquisitiveness so the interview process i found really hard they asked me a lot of questions that i just didn't know the answer to about like networking layers and i left the interview i was like bawling my eyes out and i i'm pretty sure i'm not the only or last person to go through that 
But I think what I tried to really key into was reflecting the questions back and kind of like showing an openness and willingness to try and pick up on things. And I think that worked a lot in my favor because for an intern, and this would be the biggest requirement, honestly, like they understand that you're not probably going to be contributing, although I think I contributed actually a bunch during my internship. But the focus for an intern should really be like their development and their learning. So I think you only want to go into that if it's someone who demonstrates that they're there to learn. Mm -hmm. Networking layers is this OCI model with seven layers. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, it's like I I I still don't fully know it. So like I didn't learn much there. That's the physical level, and then there is like all the way up. Yeah, I'm not sure. It probably has some practical applications. Yeah, there's some good understanding there in like understanding exactly how the thing you're building is being served to users. But I honestly can say I've not used this in my job. <laughs> okay, and then there is a follow-up question from the same person. At what age? But before you answer, yeah, you you don't have to answer that, of course. But maybe <laughs> does it even matter at what age you? do this because you said you changed your career three times right yeah like at least in germany do you feel age makes any difference when you try to get into this junior dev position yeah i mean i think age is the most a thing in many industries and not alone tech but also in tech so i was 32 i think 32 33 when i was making this transition so that was also part of my reasoning is that i was like out of the 20s where I felt I could do anything and uh, feeling like I needed a proper job. I'm not sure I specifically did hit any barriers when it came to my age, but I do think this is something that folks do see. Uh, And I would say it's like also a real concern. Like I've seen this question in multiple times when I've talked with folks in the community and I can tell you also for myself, I was also nervous about this of like, is this a good time in my life to make this kind of change and decision? And of course, it very much depends on the individual's setup to what the answer is to that question. But I would say overall, I didn't have a problem with this personally. Mm-hmm. I think this question comes up in pretty much every interview about career changing that yeah. we had here at Data Talks Club maybe every second one, but it seems to be a common concern. I've seen the opposite also of folks thinking like if they're quite young, will they be taken seriously? And I think that's also a very valid concern, something that I faced in my career when I was young (laughs) or younger, let's say. I think they're good questions to ask yourself, but it's really going to depend on your kind of like uh, more factors. I don't think I kind of have come across a company where they were like, we don't want to hire you because you're older. Of course, they cannot say that they will be sued, right? Yeah, obviously they can't say it directly, but sometimes you know. (laughs) Another question from Nelson, and I think this is uh, also similar to a question I prepared. What are some of the challenges that you faced during the beginning of your career? So what was the most challenging thing for you or things? Convincing myself that this was a good decision and to keep going and to not be stressed out as much. Like, of course, I now wish I could look back at myself and be like, hey, don't worry, chill, it's going to work out. You can enjoy some of this process and don't worry. Like, of course, financial concerns. I was heavily supported by the government and I'm fortunate that my partner also was supporting me. But I was still like, you know, if I don't get a job in six months, how much longer can I go on the money that I have? And um, I think this was really challenging of like keeping yourself motivated and focused on the goal. A little bit of fear is probably never a bad thing in general in life, but like not letting that overwhelm you. So how did you keep yourself motivated? You said like you weren't sure if it's worth it. So how did you convince yourself that it was actually worth it and you should keep doing this? Community, community, community. <laughs> I think going to meetups, which I didn't wasn't familiar with the concept when I started out, right? I turned up at one and was like, oh, okay, I get to learn for free. I get some pizza and a beer while I'm doing it. This is amazing. 
but also so much more than that, like being able to talk to people, being able to like listen into these kind of conversations or ask questions and talk to other people who have maybe recently done something similar to what you want to do, or even those that are going through it right now, you can really bolster each other. Because I feel like it's a lot easier to like speak up for somebody else than sometimes it is for yourself. So it's really great if you have other folks who are at a similar point and you can kind of like be their cheerleader and they can be your cheerleader. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I heard it also that it's difficult to find a mentor. So there are a lot more mentees than mentors, right? And the way you can solve this problem is by like a few people who are at the same level, they can just sit together and form a mastermind group. Right, mastermind is. I don't know where this term comes from, but basically, form a group where everyone is at the same level and everyone is kind of mentored to each other. This is what you did, right? Yeah, and that's what the uh, Rails Girls Summer of Code. That was their concept. That's why you had to do it in a pair, because that was really part of the journey. So, like RT and me, we have very different backgrounds, and um, being in that situation together, we could understand each other a lot more, um, even than per se, the coaches. Because once you've also been in tech for a while, I feel like it's a little bit hard to remember some of the challenges that you faced before you got into tech. It's very different. Mm -hmm. And did you also do this with PyLadies or mostly? Because you mentioned that you can learn for free, you can get some pizza. Is it something that uh, PyLadies also do, like these community learning events, or it's more like a meetup when you just attend and listen to talks? So maybe a good segue to talking about the role that I'm playing with PyLadies. Yeah. So very early on, they were asking a PyLadies for folks to help with organizing. And of course, I was like, well, I've literally just learned two lines of Python. I can't organize a community group. Well, actually, it turns out you can. So a lot of the skill sets that are required for organizing a community group are actually not related to coding. And there are a lot of the foundational skills that we kind of actually also find really desirable in software engineers and normally put under the bracket soft skills. But um, yeah, I think it was a really strong move, to be honest, to get involved in the organizing because you kind of connect in a different way to the community group. And I'm not saying you have to become an organizer to have that kind of interaction, but I think it kind of helps. So at PyLadies, we run a number of different events and we also have a global Slack, um, very similar kind of, I think, to the Data Talk Slack, where it's a place where folks can help each other, share learning resources, share job opportunities and kind of reach out when they need support. And I think you got to find your community, right? Like Data Talk Club, I really like the community and I get a lot from it, but that might not be the community for everybody. PyLadies is the same, where our group is open to everybody, regardless of gender or background. Our primary focus is on supporting gender minorities in tech and in the Python community, but we have folks in the community that don't even program with Python and uh, they just like the community. So you got to find the place that works for you, I would say. Mm -hmm. How do you fight your imposter syndrome? So you said that you learned your first two lines of Python code. I don't think you felt like you were qualified to run a Python group after that. You said that, uh, you know, at the end you realized like it doesn't matter, like the skills you need to run a group are very different from being fluent in Python, right? But how did you convince yourself that you got it, that you can do this? I'm a very stubborn person, I think. <laughs> no, I think I really lean into this idea of like, it was to do with having the support of other people and voicing those concerns and other people's voicing their concerns and realizing I was not alone. Like, I remember being at meetups where they were showing us like Jupyter Notebooks, which I could imagine a lot of folks in this community are quite familiar with, but I had never come across a Jupyter Notebook. And even getting it running on my machine like take, took me essentially the whole meetup. And then I get in the UI and I'm like, I have no idea what this does. And it was a really horrible experience, to be honest, because I felt very alone and pretty useless, let's put it that way. So I would also say, though, that I noticed that experience was not isolated. Like, I'm not the only person that has experienced that at a meetup. So something I very much try to do actively is 
when I'm in a group, try to see for the signs of if anybody is like not so sure or not so comfortable with what's going on and reach out to them. And I think we could all do a bit more of that because it helps a lot just to know that you're not alone and like trying to get this running on Windows and then trying to get it run on Mac or Linux is difficult. It is annoying. Even like the most advanced engineers uh, kind of hit these problems. Did you need to run Jupyter on Windows or on Mac? Yes, I bought a Windows machine because I thought that's what programming yeah. was. <laughs> and uh, since then, got a Linux. Yeah, I remember it was also not easy for me as well. I, I was coming from Java world to Python, and I had a Windows computer as well back then. Yeah, it wasn't super easy. Like now, it's easier with Anaconda, but like uh, a while ago, I don't know, maybe you were doing this four years ago. I can imagine that tools weren't the same as now, right? Yeah, and I mean, even I have used computers most of my life. I mean, yeah, because I've already told you my age, so you kind of can probably figure out that as a child, as a teenager, we kind of like start to get these interactions with computers, right? And like text editing, and but I'd never really used the terminal, for instance. And we have folks joining the community who even that level of uh, digital literacy, I think is what I would kind of call it. This is something that's like, I think for younger folks today, it's maybe feels more natural because we all kind of have mobile phones. Most of us maybe have a computer of some sort or access to one. But for a lot of folks, that was kind of not a given. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring this up about terminals, like an average computer user, even if they are younger, who started like who was born and were growing up when computers were around. I don't think they use terminal that often. And the reason I'm asking, I'm curious about that. As an instructor of uh, machine learning Zoom Camp and data engineering Zoom Camp, I see that many people, even those who already have experience, let's say in data science, they are not very comfortable in the terminal. So mm. for, for me, it was natural. I just didn't even think that for some people it's uh, you know, something outside of their comfort zone. So how did you, I don't know, learn to use it, I would say? I think there are a few nice courses. I think Code Academy, again, also offered. So you took a course? Yeah, I did some courses on this, for sure. And yeah, I think the only thing with doing it in a browser-based tool is you're not actually on your machine. So I remember during the Rails Girls Summer of Code, I wanted to dual boot my machine into Linux because it became apparent to me that being the person at the meetup with Windows wasn't always the most fun. And I knew that a lot of the places that I had kind of heard about that had jobs also didn't work with uh, Windows machines. So I thought, okay, I'm going to dual boot into Linux. And I don't know how many folks have done this, but my goodness, at some point my machine just wasn't really turning on anymore. And I had to get someone to help me who then got into the main terminal and like as root was able to run all of these commands and kind of watching, learning by doing or learning by having to do because otherwise you have no computer. Try <laughs> 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 to dwell to Linux and then something will go wrong and you have no choice but to figure out how it works. Right? Pretty much. <laughs> and then in terminal, actually, like I also had this situation where the graphical interface wouldn't load. So the only thing I had was terminal. Yeah. And Actually, there are terminal-based browsers, so one of them is called Lynx, and I was able to use it for Google and stuff. That was fun. Like, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. And then, of course, there, is, so there are things like men, but you might know, the old way of getting help instead of looking up something in the search engine, but, you know, just using manuals on your computer. The terminal manuals, yeah. Yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mainly just looked up on my phone and then was like, yeah. okay, okay, this command. I Also, I wasn't very wise to the fact that you maybe shouldn't just run any random command you find online <laughs> on your computer, but uh, generally it worked out fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, coming back to PyLadies, so what kind of events do you actually organize? So I know one, which is a meetup, like after work, like the physical meetup of my meetup where after work there are speakers you watch the talk mm-hmm. you attend the talks and then there is some networking i don't know, before and after is it the only type of event you organize or there are others so previously like before the pandemic let's say 
we were predominantly running every month this kind of event that you just described and really encouraging our members to give talks and share knowledge, but also we would invite folks in. And um, we would normally be hosted by a different company every time. So you also had the chance to kind of network and meet companies. Um, we started to do some like weekend day events. Um, we were trying to run stuff that would be more beginner friendly. We were trying to run some events that were essentially for what we just talked about of like, how do I even install Python on my machine? How do I set up GitHub? Because you need those steps really to kind of join a lot of the workshops are then run by the community. And we had also been involved in a few conferences, doing like panel discussions and kind of doing collaborations with other meetup groups. The pandemic changed a lot. So first of all, of course, we could not meet in person. So we started to do things remotely. We've experimented with a few different tools. We've been using GatherTown for kind of more like brainstorming events where we help folks write their call for paper application. So shortened, it's called CFP. And that's if you want to be a, talk, a speaker at a conference, you need to submit something like this with an abstract and a bio. So we wanted to help folks kind of figure out doing that. That's the most terrible applying for a conference. Yeah. Well, actually, we ran one in January, and I think we had at least three folks from that event then go on to speak at PyCom DE, mm -hmm. which is really awesome. But right now, we're trying to experiment a lot more with being much more transparent with how we organize and also making it easier for other community members to organize. So we're really open for anything. We have currently some study groups going on every month for data structures and algorithms. Sure, predominantly, we're writing that in Python, but to be honest, you can join regardless of the language. And we are also doing an open source hack evening. The next one is actually on Tuesday. This is in person, so it's a limited uh, attendance, but that's an opportunity to get started working on an open source project. And we have some mentors there from uh, Scikit-Learn and Gene AI. And hack, uh, these uh, hack evenings are offline events, but these study groups are online or also offline? The study groups are currently online and the hack evenings are offline and the talk evenings are currently online too. And we stream them like on YouTube. We'd love to do hybrid because we found during the pandemic, I don't know if you've always done your things online. Always, yeah. I can't imagine how yeah. it must be very difficult to uh, first find a venue then I don't know. I think there are a lot of like a lot more overhead. And you, I don't know, get food or things like this. Yeah, that's true. You have to do that. It's interesting. I think there's different overhead with online. But what we would love to do is hybrid. Like we found being remote allowed us to reach more people because we could also do collaboration with other chapters in Germany. So PyLadies is a global organization. And um, there's four chapters, or I think actually a fifth one just got created during PyCon DE in Cologne. So being online had a lot of benefits. And I think moving forwards, it would be really nice to offer like more of a hybrid approach. But I do know that a lot of folks in the community really value the in-person events. Mm -hmm. And for some things, for sure, especially if you have someone who is not so familiar with the terminal or how the computer is set up, it can really help to be in the same room next to them I can imagine, yeah. to go through that. Because uh, like if it's streamed to YouTube like this one, right, it's only one directional. You cannot yeah. raise the hand and ask you a question. Of course, you can write in live chat, but it's very difficult to help through live chat. If somebody wants to take part in your events, where do they find uh, them? Is it on Meetup by Ladies Berlin or there's another place? Yeah, exactly. Meetup by Ladies Berlin is the best place. There's also then a link into our Slack. And the global Slack is kind of where we mostly promote things that we're doing. I think you mentioned that a bit. How did you find them? Or how did they find you? Pilates, like how did you start working with them? Like how did you start running the group? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I just came across Meetup. And I knew that Python was something that I wanted to kind of invest in because it's got very a lot of applications and I kind of already had this concept of being interested in the data science field, although that's actually, just to be clear, not the field that I work in. <laughs> and they were advertising for organizers during the meetup. So. Okay, so they just ask, hey, does anyone want to 
organize this and you thought okay maybe that would be me yeah that <laughs> i am that kind of person so yes but i think there's a lot of benefits to being involved in the organizing as i mentioned before not just like the networking with other members but also the element of like meeting companies so i've been to lots of companies and talked to them and i can tell you it's kind of a different conversation to when you're going there and just being like hey i want a job so mm -hmm. I think that's really great. It also helps you build. I think we we're going to also talk a little bit about public speaking, but it also really helps you kind of get comfortable also in this area. And I, I personally find it really rewarding working with others and like seeing their successes as well is really cool. And I think that's why I mentioned earlier, it like really feeds back into these foundational skills, which if you're interested in going into like a management role at some point in your career, are the kind of skills that um, you would have to build up. And uh, before running these events, I had no idea how difficult organizing these things are. Yeah, you get fact. <laughs> so I imagine that how this can be useful at work for, of course, non-technical topics. But let's say you want to organize something at work and then all of a sudden you have all the skills that you need for that. Yep. Right? Or how the team should work, like what do they need and then you you already have this, I don't know if it's right, it's correct to call it project management kind of things, but like organizing things. Yeah. I mean, I remember helping to organize one of the offsites for our dev team and the CTO was like, you might have set the bar a little high now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it does. But then you don't want to get stuck only doing that work. Yeah, I imagine. So you mentioned public speaking, and this is something we indeed wanted to talk about. I know that you are quite an active speaker, and you mentioned that you spoke at the TEF, you gave a presentation, or what was it, the lightning talk? It doesn't matter. Before even getting into IT, you already gave a talk on an IT conference. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you here, again, related to how did you feel like you can organize a branded community when you don't know much about the technology. So here as well, so how did you convince yourself that you can actually give a talk even though you're just starting? So how did you fight this imposter syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I think most people, even people who I spoke to that I felt were like really proficient speakers also have nerves and this kind of what we call imposter syndrome of feeling like, we don't have anything to add to the conversation or it's not something that we have the ability to do and i definitely i continue to feel this like actually recently and i'm gonna say this is like you know i think you have to celebrate your wins but recently i've been asked to give a keynote at PyCon italia which honestly i'm still that's cool wondering why <laughs> they asked me but like you have to celebrate your wins and um my initial response was just to say, oh, no, sorry, I can't do it. But then I was like, don't talk yourself out of this opportunity. So a lot of the time, I think we are our own worst enemies and kind of really holding ourselves back. So I think the first talk I gave after I had like transitioned into tech was at the Nextcloud conference. So Nextcloud is an open source software that I worked on with the Rails Girls Summer of Code. Um, they have a conference and I gave a small talk there about Git commands that I had learned and had fun finding various Wizard of Odd characters and uh, aligning them with the different Git commands. And I think that's a good way is to get started with a smaller group that you're more comfortable with. So the contributor conference, I mean, it wasn't tiny, but it's like not a huge conference and it was predominantly people that I kind of already knew. And I think, yeah, speaking at meetups is also a really good way to do this because then you can get a feel for what topics you also want to talk about and um, also like how you want to present them. I feel like this is something I'm also still learning a lot, but I've also realized there's some topics I don't want to talk about that I just, I feel like I don't have a lot to say or like they don't interest me as much. And I think I had to go through this process of doing a lot of speaking to actually get to that point. And I imagine, let's say you just learned Git commands, or I don't know if that was the case when you gave that talk about Git commands, but let's say you learned them two months ago. And now 
Like, how do you actually convince yourself that I know enough of this not to embarrass myself when I talk about these things? Mm -hmm. Because things can go wrong. Always, even for experienced speakers, uh, live demos will go wrong. So how did you convince yourself that it's okay to do this? I think the fear is what happens when that person at the end puts their hand up and asks me a question I don't know the answer to, and I've put myself in this position of expert. And I've given talks where people put their hand up at the end and ask that question I didn't know the answer to and felt embarrassed because I felt like I positioned myself as an expert. I think this is obviously totally understandable that people would feel this way. The thing is, when you're giving a talk on a topic, actually, you know, the expectation is not that you know everything about it, like, especially if it's a broad topic, right? So I talked about specific Git commands that I had recently learned and got familiar with. But if someone had asked me about a different Git command, I just wouldn't have known. Like, there is a certain breadth of the topic that you just can't cover. I think also it's like, why are you giving the talk, right? What is the kind of like personal edge on this? And that is something that no one is more expert on than yourself if it's your experience. So for me, I was talking also not just about the Git commands in a way of like, oh, here's some Git commands you can learn, but also like my experience of having to learn those Git commands and my feeling towards them. So if you can put your talk in this angle, then you should feel confident because this is the added layer of personality that only you can add. And no one else is an expert on that than yourself. So I think it's it's totally fine to feel that fearful, but also there's really good techniques that I've learned from watching other speakers of how to kind of gracefully say, I don't know. So how to gracefully say, I don't know, apart from, you know, just being upfront and saying, mm, sorry, I don't know that. I mean, it's also totally fine to just be like, hey, I don't know uh, that. I think one thing you can do is see it as an opportunity to learn. So you can say, hey, that's a really interesting point that you raised, and I'd love to talk to you more about it. So you don't have to on the spot have an answer. It might be something that you think you can answer, but not immediately. And you can say, hey, I need some time to think about that. Come find me after the talk and we can talk about it further. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, if someone asks you something and you don't know, like, Actually, that also happened to me where someone came and was asking me about my talk and I was talking about this big O notation in algorithms and different algorithms implementations in Python. And I think I had made a small error in one of my slides and someone came and spoke to me about that at the end. So that was great. It was a learning opportunity for me too. After the talk, right? Not uh, during the Q&A. Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely a lot to be said for this. If you're the person asking questions, like, yeah, be mindful. And if you're giving feedback, also be mindful of how you deliver feedback. Um, Like even in the PyCon, I heard about some folks just kind of going up to speakers and being like, I just disagree with you, but like not really constructively saying why. And it is totally fine to have your opinion on something. But also when it's a subjective topic, maybe also think about like what real worth your comment adds to that. Yeah, so how helpful this public speaking was for your career? Did it help you land a job or broaden your network? I think it's really useful and I think it's very beneficial. I don't think it's for everybody. You obviously, first of all, have to feel comfortable with it and it has to be something that you would like to do. But I think the visibility it brings you is actually quite useful you get first of all you get to be invited on awesome podcasts or (laughs) like this kind of thing and talk to Alexi so why would you not want to do it but I think also it does broaden your network and so far I haven't changed jobs so I haven't really looked at it in this way although I have had job offers after I've given talks I've also spoken to people who then want to work at Ecosia so I've helped the company that I work for have some sort of brand recognition in the tech industry indirectly, then maybe get hired at the company. So I think there's a lot of pluses and I think we need more representation also. Like there's a lot of conferences that have, you know, a very good selection of speakers, but they don't have a lot of like different speakers. And as I mentioned before, it's this personal layer of a topic that I think adds the interest. So one thing that we'd like to do at PyLadies is really support more people, not just to talk at our meetup groups, 
but then also talk at other platforms and conferences and some folks get paid for this. You can somebody to Data Talks Club. We are always looking for guests and speakers. I absolutely have a few people for you. <laughs> um, do you have any tips regarding public speaking? Like if somebody wants to improve their public speaking skills or I don't know, just get started. Do you have any tips or suggestions? Yeah, I would um, maybe start small. Like, so start with like a 10 minute talk. There's a great conference called Python Pizza. All the talks are 10 minutes. You know, not that a 10 minute talk is easy, but don't get me wrong. I think crafting a 10 minute talk. More difficult than yeah, in some ways it's more difficult. Yeah, exactly. But I think also you can be a bit more contained and try not to cover too broad a topic, like be more specific. Really think about this personal element of like why you're giving the talk. Okay. So, like, it's great if you want to talk about like a Docker Compose or some new library, but what's your connection to that? Why are people turning up to listen to you talk about that? And I think also do some dry runs. So, something we do at PyLadies is when we have speakers, we normally do a dry run, which means that they present the talk, maybe not even in a finished state, to a couple of the organizers and we give feedback. And I think this is a great way to refine. I haven't done many talks that I've given over and over again, but I hear folks also kind of do this. Have you done that where you've talked and then you've gone and done the same talk somewhere else? Yeah, I did a couple of times. Usually people just, uh, I gave a talk on PyData Py Berlin before pandemic, and then somebody saw the talk and said, hey, do you want to give the same talk in our conference? I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's great. But then sadly, pandemic happened, so I couldn't travel to Bucharest. I wanted to travel to Bucharest, so I had to do it oh. online. But that's still okay. Uh, was that a useful experience then for like refining the material? Yeah, and also I think for me personally, I usually try to give the same talk at work before going to a conference. So this is like a dry run. Yeah, that's a great idea. But it's all conferences. Like I can't imagine like when you go and give that keynote in PyCon at Italy, there must be a lot of people watching you, like 1,000. Oh, yeah, good. You're, you're, you're not making me nervous at all. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely nerve-wracking. Like, I think uh, being on the stage at GoTo, that's a big stage in that BCC hall. It is a huge stage. And even though there wasn't, like, a huge amount of people attending, that is a different experience to maybe having done it during the pandemic and being on Zoom calls and talking. Like, Indeed. it's too edged. I like the interaction with the audience that you get if you do it in person. You don't mm -hmm. really get that online. Yeah, I see that we don't have a lot of time left. And I really wanted to oh, talk yeah. to you about the company where you work, Ecosia. I hope I pronounced it correctly. And I know that you're doing some amazing stuff there. So can you tell us more about that? Mm -hmm. I will give you a very quick overview. So, yeah, Ecosia is a search engine, just like uh, Google or DuckDuckGo, any of your preferences. But we're putting our profits into tree planting because we believe that this is the most significant way to have an impact on the changing climate in, in a positive way. So the company model essentially works like any search engine. When you make searches, some of the results are ads. And when you click on the ads, we earn some revenue. And essentially, we are very transparent with our financials, but we put our profits into tree planting instead of like into investors' pockets. Of course, this is the profits, right? After we've paid all of our bills and have some for growth and so forth. Right now, I think it's at 54% of our revenue. And that's something that's like one of our real goals is to like be earning more revenue so we can put more into the tree planting. The work there for me right now is mainly backend engineering work. So we work with like microservices and the microservices actually are predominantly written in Golang. So I didn't write as much Python for most of the time that I've been working there. But recently I kind of moved over a little bit into a new team that's working on um, adding more green information on the search results. And we've kind of had a few projects ongoing, but we started to do a little bit of like intent recognition. Also working with some of the universities here in Berlin. So yeah, this was my big hope for 
the machine learning Zoom camp, which was just amazing, I will say again, uh, was to try and apply a few more of those skills into my day-to-day -day work. Unfortunately, it's not quite worked out that way as much as I would have liked, I will be honest. But I think having that base and being the person I am, I will still continue to advocate to kind of, yeah, use these resources and see how it can like improve our product and help us plant more trees. Yeah, great. Before we finish, there is one question with three upvotes. Maybe we can cover that quickly. Yeah. So the question is, did you face any discrimination for being a woman in tech? It is said that tech bros can be pretty annoying. <laughs> it's an interesting way of phrasing the question. Sorry, that's why I'm laughing. I mean, like, let's be real. There is definitely a gender imbalance in tech, not only in tech. I mean, the other industries that I worked in, film and television and coffee, equally uh, have this problem. And I mean, yeah, I think being a woman is one axis of that. But if you also fall into some of the other marginalized groups in tech, you're also certainly probably going to face a lot more problems than I did. I think being a native English speaker, I had a lot of privilege there in terms of the fact that tech in Berlin is predominantly an English speaking world. So I know a lot of folks in the community where this is a barrier that they face. I think there is an underlying sexism in our society. So of course that exists in tech as well. And I definitely feel like the tech industry has enough resources to start doing more about this and not just sexism, but like all the different intersections of uh, discrimination and marginalization that happens. So. I'm very hopeful that this is a space where we can really make an impact and I'm always open if people have ideas of how we can do more to do so. Yeah, thanks. So before we finish, how can people find you? Sleepy Pioneer in Twitter, right? That's uh, the way to find you. In Twitter and GitHub, LinkedIn, it's my actual name, which is Jessica Green with an E on the end of green. I am always around in PyLady Slack, so you will not miss me there. <laughs> And the one that's like posting a lot of stuff. And if folks want to reach out, I'm happy to also like have like one-on-one -on -one or a coffee chat when time permits. Okay. Thanks a lot for joining us today, for sharing your story, for telling us about how you did that. Yeah. And thanks everyone for joining us today as well, for asking questions, for being here today. And I think that's all for today. So thanks again. Thank you, Alexi. And thanks for everyone who tuned in and the great questions. Yeah, have a great weekend. Bye. Yeah, you too. Happy weekend. <laughs>